So welcome to Mastering Burns Management, a paradigm shift of treatment strategies. And um, we're delighted that you can join us from the global audience tonight. Uh, we've got two of the, the leading global experts in Burns joining us. We've got Dr. Paul Glatt, um, who's based in Pennsylvania. Uh, welcome, Dr. Glatt. You're the director of the Burns Unit. And you live in an unpronounceable town, I'm afraid. I'll need your help with it. It's almost like a Welsh Welsh sounding. It is a Welsh word, but let's just say Philadelphia. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. That makes life, <laughs> makes life easier. And then we've got um, Prof Kimball, who's joining us from Brisbane. And Prof Kimball is the director, clinical director at the Centre for Children's Health Research at Queensland Children's Hospital, based in Brisbane. Uh, so we're really delighted to have two of these leading world experts on Burn joining us for this session. Uh, so welcome both. The pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And Prof Kimball, we'll come to you first to give us your insight of decades of experience of, of Burns. You're going to distill all of this for us into um, some really key messages for our global audience on how to manage particularly pediatric Burns. Yes, th thank you very much. I'm, I'm a pediatric surgeon, so really I can only talk about children. Um, but a lot of the principles I'll be talking about certainly apply to adults. Um, so I'm speaking from Brisbane. Um, we treat kids with burns up to the age of 16 for new burns and 18 for follow-up. Um, and what I'm going to go through is a lot of the principles and I'll take you back. I started here in Brisbane last century, in fact, in 1999, and things were not good then. We didn't have good pain control for kids with burns. The agents we were using were very cytotoxic. And the dressings we were using were cytotoxic. We used to put um, silver sulfadiazine with chlorhexidine, slubber this on kids, uh, scrape it off every day in a bath. And we know this is very toxic. As I say, we were doing daily dressing changes. Um, we had very limited access to general anesthetics and theater. And we saw this inevitable wound progression, which uh, Jackson described a long time ago, and we'll talk about that later. So things were not good, and the outcomes as a result were very poor. Fast forward to this year, and things are totally different. We've got prevention going very well. So we're seeing a lot of the mechanisms we were seeing in 1999 just don't exist anymore. First aid, we think is so important. Um, that's got huge uptake here in Australia. Um, pain control, we've got algorithms for that. And we consider anything above a, a two, point, two points and a 10 point scale, an adverse event here. So kids should not be in pain, having burns dressings or any time during the burns journey. The cleaning agents are non-cytotoxic. We'll talk about that. And the dressings we're using are going to are much lower in cytotoxicity. We don't change dressings every day now. At most, we'll change them twice a week, but most of our dressings are a full week. We've got excellent access to theater. We use a lot of negative pressure wind therapy. And what we emphasize here is the importance of the first 24 hours in that patient's burns journey. 
just going back to the basics with the skin, um, you get a burn. Um, it's actually very rare in this country to have a full thickness burn. So it's partial thickness, and we're relying on reepithelialization from these skin appendages. And the faster you can do that, the better. Um, in the old days, we used to see a lot of full thickness burns, but that was because the burn deepened over the first 72 hours or so. And I go back to the Jackson model I, I talked about before. So back in the 1950s, Douglas Jackson in Birmingham in the UK described what you see in burns. And that's uh, when you see it initially, you think this is a partial thickness burn. And over the first three days, that burn appears to deepen. And he described this, the three zones of a burn, the most important being the zone of stasis, which is just outside the zone of coagulation and inside the zone of hyperemia. And it's all about this zone of stasis. If you, Douglas Jackson didn't think you could actually do anything to, to save that. He just was describing the progression of a burn wound. In, in other words, the zone of stasis um, died off and that's why you were seeing the, the deepening of the burn. But nowadays, we know that you can save that zone of stasis with all the things I'm going to be talking about, um, starting off with first aid, analgesia, um, fluid resuscitation, et cetera, et cetera. So that's not an inevitability. Like Jackson said, we know we can save it. And we've known we can save it for, you know, in fact, since last century. Um, and that's uh, the, the principle of our philosophy in Burns is all about saving the zone of stasis. Now, this is actually not a new concept. If you go back to the Egyptian papyruses, um, this is now three and a half thousand years ago. There's a beautiful translation um, by um, Sir O'Brien on the uh, Ebers papyrus. And it goes like this, and it says, another remedy to drive away the turning white of a burn. And then it goes on to how you actually do it, which I, I wouldn't recommend you know, today, but, this turning white of a burn is exactly what we see if you don't turn, if you don't treat a burn properly, it deepens. And so they knew this three and a half thousand years ago, and it's taken that, that long for us to um, you know, start doing this. We know that there's a relationship between the time a burn takes to re-epithelialize and the incidence of scarring. And you see this beautiful sigmoid curve, which was created by the, um, this is, I call the chip paper from Birmingham in the UK. Um, it's a beautiful graph. And that's the, the up part of that sigmoid curve is around 17 days. And we actually use 17 days as our cutoff between needing scar management and not simply because uh, burns which re before 17 days are very unlikely to form a scar. We've actually done our own sigmoid curve looking at uh, almost 800 patients in our unit here, and it's remarkably similar to the chip paper. So this is a real thing, uh, the 17-day the for that um, upturning of the sigmoid curve. And of course, scarring is a problem. It's what everyone wants to avoid in burns. Um, and 
although we've got fantastic treatments now to um, try and make scarring as, as less as possible, you still don't want to have it if it's uh, at all possible to avoid. So for scarring nowadays, we've got uh, silicon ointments, we've got pressure garments, which we're using a lot less now than we used to. Um, but we've got all the other things. We've got microneedling, CO2 fractional laser, pulsed eye laser to get rid of redness. And now the new boy in the block is vacuum roller massage, which is proven to be really, really good. The huge benefit of this is, of course, you can do it awake. So lots and lots of um, scar modulation treatments um, at her fingertips, but you don't want to get this far. So let's go back um, to the, the problems with scarring. We, we've designed here um, a, a scar tool, which actually doesn't just measure the scar itself. Uh, it also looks at the psychosocial effects that that scar has on the child and family. And we've been using this for, for several years and it's translated into many languages and, and used around the world. But what it shows is that huge impact on the child and the family from having a scar. So we really want to avoid that. We also know that there's a really strong relationship between the burn wound and its reepithelialization and the patient's pain, anxiety, and stress. And we've shown that if you can reduce any of these, then you increase the rate of reepithelialization. So it's so important to get um, these stress levels down and pain control. Can't emphasize that more. We also know now exactly who gets more pain in the pediatric world. And it's no surprise that it's the kids with the feet and hands burns. 50% of all the kids we treat have got uh, feet and hand burns. Um, very, very common. And most of them are toddlers. We know that it's the, uh, the burns where there's multiple sites involved. Deeper burns cause more pain. And of course, larger uh, total body surface area of the burn. We've also noticed if that child has the, the first dressing outside our hospital, the pain scores are higher later on. And that's probably because in a lot of places, the treatment has been suboptimal. The child's had a bad experience and that will escalate the uh, pain scores um, uh, later on. So we know exactly who gets more pain and we can actually have an escalated pain pathway for these kids. So you don't have to wait until a child has pain. You can predict it and give them proper analgesia before the, um, the, the dressing change. And if you're predicting that your uh, oral medi medication is not going to work, we, we give these kids general anesthetic. We've got two lists a week where all we do is dressing changes under general anesthetic within our burns unit. So, so I would say in this day and age, it's unacceptable for a child to have pain during dressing changes. Now, going right back to the basics, how do you prevent that zone of stasis from dying off and deepening the burn? Well, it starts right at the very beginning. We know that first aid is very important. And we know now what the optimal first aid is. 
And so we know it's uh, 20 minutes of cool running water. Anything between 2 and 15 degrees centigrade is absolutely fine. And if you can't get to it straight away, a delay of up to three hours still is worthwhile. And of course, the, the, these recommendations work for most of the world. Now in Queensland, where we're subtropical, the temperature of the water coming out of the taps is 15 degrees. But where I came from originally in Scotland, you know, the temperature in most winter months is uh, nearer that two degrees. So mm. um, these recommendations work worldwide. Um, and we know that ice doesn't help a burn. In fact, it, it will increase the chances of hypothermia. And all the alternative treatments which you hear for burns, um, such as hydrogels um, and all granny's remedies, none of them actually will lessen the depth of that burn. And so they, they should only be used as adjuncts to proper first aid, which is 20 minutes of cold running water. And we've we've shown this not just in our animal model, we've also shown it in the, our large cohorts of kids. This is a paper from um, a couple of years ago. We've looked at two and a half thousand kids um, with burns and saw the effect of either having first aid or not having first aid. And what we showed is that uh, without first aid, the chances of having a full thickness part to your burn increases. And you can see that the, the different uh, increments of first aid, as you go up, the chances of having a full thickness depth burn go down. The chances of requiring hospital admission, again, is directly related to the amount of first aid that they had. Whether they need to go to theatre is again related to first aid and the chances of having skin grafting as a result also um, decrease the more first aid you have. So it's very, very important. We also know that the delay in getting to a tertiary burn center for every day delay, the, 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 the chances of um, revitalization early decreases. And we can we can measure that, and um, this is for our own patients in Brisbane, but I'm sure it applies around the world. So the importance of getting any significant burn to your burn unit as fast as possible is really really important. Cleaning burns very important to decrease that colonization risk, and. We used to use a lot of chlorhexidine, um, and chlorhexidine is a great uh, substance to, to kill bugs. Unfortunately, it also kills keratinocytes. And so we don't use this anymore. What we do is we actually use a substance called QB, which is it's not quite a detergent, but it has a detergent-like effect, but it's totally non-cytotoxic and is a great cleaning agent for um, that uh, burn and for subsequent dressing changes. We tend to give a, a rinse of 0.2% uh, chlorhexidine uh, right at the very end. Um, and we, we started that during the, the, the COVID time and we've actually carried on doing that, but it's just a quick rinse rather than a scrub with chlorhexidine. 
Now, what we um, really promote here in Brisbane is that first burns debridement that really has to be as good as possible. Now, I'm not talking about surgical debridement. I'm talking about um, just giving that wound a really, really good scrub down uh, with, with gauze, um, just getting rid of blisters, debris, um, and getting that, that burn ready for that initial dressing. Now, to get that good scrub, um, you've got to give decent analgesia. And if that can't be done with uh, the patient awake, we put them to sleep. So we take a lot of kids to theater in that first few hours after the burn, just for that initial scrub. Remember, this is not a surgical scrub. And what we've shown is that you can speed up the rate of rehabilitation just with that initial scrub. In fact, it's, uh, it's a whole five days earlier um, as a median that you're getting rehabilitation, you know, 15 days compared to 20 days. And you see that that is quite significant because it actually straddles that 17-day mark where we have the cutoff between scarring and not scarring. So we see this as very, very important and um, really to convince our um, theatre staff, our anaesthetists, we published this a few years ago and you can't argue with the evidence. The dressings which we eventually apply to the burn, we've done a lot of trials in the past to find the optimum dressings. Um, a lot of PhDs uh, spent doing this and what we've come up with is an algorithm which has been in use for several years now. This is the algorithm which we use um, where we're mainly using silver dressings, um, but we do not use silver straight on the actual burn wound. There's always a layer of silicon, whether that be with Miflex AG, which has the, the, the safe tag silicon barrier between the silver dressing and the wound, or Acticoat with a, a Mipitel interface, which again, um, just prevents that direct contact of the silver dressing on the burn wound, because we know that silver is cytotoxic. So really what we're looking for is a balance between killing bugs and killing skin cells. And so you don't want too much silver unless your, your burn is already colonized, but you want enough silver to keep that colonization down so that uh, your burn's got as much chance of rehabilitation early under that 17-day mark as possible. And so for different uh, burns, which we see, we use different dressings, but this is the algorithm we use and we're very happy to share with, with anyone. This has been used by a lot of the, the, the centers in Australia and around the world. And we've not really changed it over years because it, it seems to be very, very good. We also use a lot of negative pressure wound therapy. That seems to make a difference, uh, but it only seems to make a difference if you're applying it early, certainly within the first 48 hours. But I personally think that really what you want is getting the negative pressure wound therapy on in the first few, hour, few hours. If you can get on within the first 12 hours of burn, I think that's probably the best. What negative pressure wound therapy does to a burn wound 
we really don't know, but certainly you reduce edema, um, increase vascularization, and the burn wounds certainly revitalize faster with negative pressure wound therapy. We've now done four randomized control trials looking at negative pressure wound therapy and burns, and there's absolutely no doubt in our mind that this works for kids. Now, this is the one of the areas where kids are a bit different from adults. Little kids tolerate negative pressure wound therapy beautifully. It's almost like they, they haven't got any dressing on, but it really annoys adults. And uh, so the tolerance to this, the burden behind the treatment is quite different as you go up in ages. But most of our burns are in the toddler age group. And so we have no problems with this. And with big burns, we're happy to cover as much as possible of the patient. We've gone up to three quarters of the patient under negative pressure wound therapy for the big burns. But we've shown it significantly increases the rate of rehabilitation. So a lot of our patients have negative pressure. Most of the kids who go to theater for that initial scrub, and we're, we're also using it as they come into emergency, putting on a wake if we can get the, the burn wound nice and clean. And we're leaving negative pressure on. If you put it on initially, we're leaving it on for a full week. Now, I'm going to show here three algorithms which uh, we introduced. Um, the, the, these algorithms were introduced about three years ago. And we've done slight modifications. Now, what I can say about algorithms is that you really have to create algorithms for your own center your own population and your own climate. Because as I say, we're a, a subtropical um, you know, state in Australia. And some of the, the, the sort of conditions that the kids are going back to at home because 92% of our patients are outpatients. They're not in the hospital. And they're going back to temperatures of 40 degrees centigrade. And a lot of the traditional dressings actually melt in the Queensland heat. So we create dressings for our own environment. What we don't want is dressings drying up because that just increases itch, which is probably the number one problem with burns today. So although I say this is what we use here, you've got to work out what's best for your own environment. But what we're emphasizing here in the algorithm is the importance of that first 24 hours. And... Um, for different sizes and depths of burns, we, we have different treatments. And so, again, I'm very happy to share this algorithm with everyone. Um, there's no copyright in any of the things I'm, I'm showing here. So this is our first 24-hour algorithm. You can see we're taking a lot of kids to theater. Um, we're using a lot of negative pressure wound therapy. And, of course, for the big burns, which... Uh, I must say, we're not the world experts in big burns because we don't get that many. Of course, we get our own fair share, but the vast majority of the burns which we have here are small to medium-sized burns. And the vast majority are going to be partial thickness. So that's what we're experts in. You know, I, I refer to the Americans, Chinese and Indians to talk about big burns. Um, but what we're experts on is what we see so that's the first 24 hours. Um, we also have an algorithm for um, between the first 24 hours and revitalization and exactly what we do. And I won't uh, go into this in detail that um, 
I'm very happy to share this with, with everyone, but this is what we do here. And it just makes it very easy for our uh, junior medical staff and senior medical staff, our nurses, allied health staff, to so we're all on the same page. And then finally, we've got an algorithm for once the burn wound is reepithelialized and the ones who actually require scar management and, and exactly what we do. So again, very happy to, to share all these. And this is what the change in practice has done for us. And what we're looking at is uh, we moved into our new hospital in 2015, uh, 2000, actually the end of 2014. And so this is what's happened to the split thickness grafting rate for kids over these years. Now we treat, just to put you in the picture, about 1,200 kids with newborns a year here. So we're, we're, we're fairly busy because in Australia, we have centralized units, one for each state for kids. So we're, we kind of get most of the um, significant burns. So you can see that uh, back in 2015, we were grafting almost 100 kids a year. Last year, we grafted 19. And that equates to about 1.5% of our burns population. So we're it's actually a small minority, 1.5% that we're Indian grafting, that all the rest are reappealizing, usually within that first um, 17 days. In fact, we're sending less than 5% of our burns patients to um, our allied health staff for, for scar management. So more than 95% of our burns will reappealize it, will reappealize within. 17 days, and we're actually discharging them, just with advice. So that's what's happened by using these algorithms over the years. And this is um, a chart looking at the incidence of um, you know, four different um, um, sort of uh, key uh, features are in the pediatric burdens world since 1999 till uh, the end of last year. And you can see in the gray, you're looking at the inpatient rate. When I started here, half the, all the burns patients were being admitted to the ward. And that was simply because we were doing daily dressings and baths. And so they had to be inpatients. Pain levels were high. They were there. Now um, it's between 7 and 8% of patients end up spending 24 hours in the ward. So it's a huge reduction of inpatient costs and that. And that is enormous savings for the, the health service. That's the most expensive thing you can do in Queensland is admit a child to a hospital. The optimum first aid really started at a very low uh, rate uh, when I got here. Uh, but after we did the, the studies and uh, made this our mission to try and get as many patients as possible, the last time we measured it, it was, it was above 70%, and I'm talking about optimal first aid, so that's full 20 minutes of cold running water. Now, I think it's uh, well above the 80s or even in the 90s um, for kids in Queensland and getting that optimum first aid. The kids getting grafting, you can see, has plummeted. It was 27% of all kids getting grafts when I started here. Now, as I say, it's down at 1.5%, so a huge reduction in grafting. 
and scar management started off at 33% of kids, which we saw developed a scar. Now it's less than 5%. So how did we achieve this? Well, I, I've spoken about uh, a lot of these things, but we introduced a lot of these principles gradually. So we did uh, started randomized control trials in 2000, the Biobrand trial. Acticoat was introduced in 2001. Um, which was, you know, the first dressing, which we could leave on for several days. We did a lot of cytotoxicity studies way back in 2003. We determined what the optimal first aid was in 2007. And we used a lot of distraction in our unit, uh, either with virtual reality, clown doctors for the really young patients, you know, and we know that distraction works. It reduces pain and stress and anxiety and increases the rate of rehabilitation. And so we're big in that uh, front just now. The debridement evidence I was talking about before, we first showed that in 2008. The relationship between pain and rehabilitation, we finally got in 2011. Um, what predicts the um, rehabilitation of burn, we analyzed that and uh, published that in a beautiful PhD in 2014. The neck to pressure wound therapy, that all started about eight years ago on acute burns. And our big RCTs on silver dressings and the dressing algorithm, we've now had that for eight years. And the QV lotion <laughs> using that fragment was five years ago. And the escalated pain pathway for working out who needs more pain, we introduced that four years ago. And the, the debridement study under general anaesthetic that came out four years ago and our big trials in neck to pressure wound therapy, again, that was four years ago. And that first 24 hours algorithm uh, came out in 2020. So we've been running that uh, for a few years and we've really not had to change it. Um, that's really all I've got to say, but thank you very much for your attention and um, happy to, to take any questions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Prof. Kimball, and uh, thank you to our global audience for, for watching uh, through this real interesting journey of trajectory of burns management over the last few decades. It's uh, It's really quite a, an honor to have such a, an expert view on how things have changed both you know for you as a clinician but also the different mechanisms by which uh, we've got such a low um, skin grafting rate by all accounts in your unit so congratulations on managing to to get such a, a streamlined service um, and with such excellent results. So Dr. Glatt we're very interested to hear your perspective on the basics of burn care. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me to talk about this. And uh, I'm really going to share my experience uh, in a U.S. burn center. And so we can co contrast uh, what our other speaker may talk about, but probably a lot of similarities and maybe some slight differences. So uh, we just wanted to start with some burn care basics and some just some U.S. statistics. There's some, about 700,000 burns each year um, documented in the United States. There's probably many more that don't seek medical attention. And even of those, 95% are treated in an outpatient ambulatory session, setting. 
So really only 50 to 70,000 reach the hospital setting, um, 40,000 of which are treated in a designated burn center in the United States, of which we have 120 or so of those. Um, about 30 to 40% of those are pediatric burn injuries. And sadly, we, we see about 12,000 deaths a year. Um, in our country, really, the criteria listed here are those that, you know, we put out to, you know, to other hospitals to say, these are the types of patients we would like you to transfer for the patient's best interest to a burn center. So really anything over 5% full or 10% partial thickness injury should be in a designated center where people know how to resuscitate patients and to treat these injuries with, you know, multidisciplinary care. And certainly specialized areas of the body where a scarring could be so devastating, um, like the face, hands, feet, genitalia, across joints. And then some of those other situations where which can complicate a simple burn, such as an inhalational injury, something that's caused by electrical or chemical you know, sources. And then I do a lot of pediatric burns as well as our other speaker. And uh, child abuse is another reason to kind of take the patient out of the home, even if it's a small burn, and protect them and, and figure out what's going on. And then many of our adult patients especially have comorbidities and pre-existing conditions, which you know, may make a simple burn life-threatening. So they should be in a burn center. When we look at the mechanism of injury, again, we usually see scald burns and flame burns. And we can sometimes tell that a scald burn more likely is going to not be full thickness, whereas a flame burn because of the temperatures are often full thickness. And that helps guide us a little bit in our initial burn management. And then we see these other uh, lesser frequent things such as contact burns, chemical, electrical, and those sorts of burns that can become, you know, deepen or, or change with time that we're not used to treating. Um, again, abuse and circumferential injuries have specialized uh, issues as well. Um, the reason we classify burn by depth, and it helps us to kind of get a sense if it's a scald, maybe we're looking at a superficial or deep partial versus a, a flame injury uh, that may be more likely full thickness or even what we used to call fourth degree because it's very, very deep. And some of that helps us to determine how long we think it's going to heal. And as we talked about uh, with scarring, and we'll talk about more, usually that 17 to 21 day time frame helps us to, to guide the patient on whether or not we think they're going to have scarring or not. And if they are, then, you know, that leads to a lot more um, care for the patient outside of the hospital to minimize and manage scarring. So that's a big deal. And then usually it helps us to also advise the patient or the family whether we think they're going to need surgery or not. You know, superficial injuries typically don't. And we'll go over different dressings and skin substitutes, which may help us to heal those. And then we also have those deeper injuries, which, you know, some of sometimes a deep partial goes to the OR for a skin graft. Sometimes it doesn't, but a full thickness injury almost always does. And so that really, you know, again, tells us about hospital stay, types of products we might need, uh, scarring, aftercare, those, all of those things. So this is really our general uh, principles of managing a burn. I, we like algorithms. It helps us to kind of be consistent with what we're doing for patients. And so certainly early on, we're looking at debriding that wound, whether that's surgical, mechanical, enzymatic, those are ways of cleaning off the dead tissue helps us to look at that burn wound bed more, more carefully and determine what we think may be the depth of that injury. 
And even in the most experienced hands, we're not all always right about the depth, but that's why we watch this and see them early on on a daily basis. So our, our real combination of uh, local wound care, soap and water, to, and then you know mechanical debridement of any devitalized tissue. And then that leads us into the, the next sort of arm of the algorithm, which is what do we put on this burn? We almost always use an antimicrobial and it's almost always topical, but that can come in the form of topical antibiotics or it can come in the form of silver dressings. And we're gonna discuss some of that. And ultimately we want that patient to re-epithelialize or heal on their own with their own tissue, whether that's with a little assistance from us with you know, wound care or skin substitutes or just letting them heal on their own. And one of our main stalwart you know, principles is we really wanna minimize the pain. We see a lot of post-traumatic stress from patients who don't have good pain management, who are really traumatized by these injuries and, and more so the care for these injuries than the injury itself. And so if we can deal with minimizing pain, it's such a big advantage to the patient. So this is just a list of some of the topical antimicrobials that we use almost on a daily basis. Um, the big ones for us are really, you know, a zero flow, which is a, a more porous type of, uh, you know, uh, petrolatum type based dressing uh, in combination with topical antibiotic ointments like bacitracin, for example. And we also use a lot of collagenase, which is an ointment which has enzymatic activity and the combination can work very nicely to clean up the wound very quickly. Some of these dressings we use in a more, you know, or these topicals, I should say, we use more in a specific type of situation like sulfamylon, what we might use on ears and noses, cartilage, those sort of things. Silvadine, we don't use a whole lot of, but it's probably the most commonly used thing in the world at this point. And then the things we really consider when we're trying to make our decision tree as to what to do for the patient is how morbid is the wound itself, and then the morbidity of any sort of operative or non-operative management, optimizing function. So, you know, again, if you have a growing child, it's one thing. If you don't have growth to expect, that's a different thing. But what kind of tissue is missing? What kind of closure options do we have? And then really what kind of complications or problems will we cause with the closure? Because donor sites can be problematic. Um, we look at the age of the patient and we look at you know, patient and family desires as well. And then we look at uh, you know, how big is the surface area of the wound? Where on the body is it? As a plastic surgeon, we're very interested in aesthetics uh, and scarring, of course. And the key really is that sort of 17 day marker where we wanna get that wound closed within that time to avoid the scar issue. And lastly, you see in all capitals is pain. If we can do things that don't have to be done daily or the patient can be out of the hospital and the pain is minimized, it's a big win for us. So when we look at things on a, you know, a depth level and that's how I, I really work my algorithm, let's start with superficial partial. And again, you can see all of the issues related to pain management. Pain is important. It requires uh, anesthesia to manage that if the patient is going to have a daily type of dressing change. And that amount of pain, uh, we talked about having an effect on healing, but also on the length of stay. And it's surprising to know that the, the worse the pain is managed, again, we can have slower healing. And so that's really fascinating. And there's studies that we'll discuss. Um, and then we look at quality of life issues. And as I alluded to earlier, PTSD. So 
Um, a lot of these patients need psychological and other management after. Um, so what is really the ideal dressing for superficial partial? Because, you know, most of these burns will heal with, with any type of management. But again, you saw the focus for us is pain and expediting closure. And so what you see here is, uh, you know, a, an image on the right of SafeTac technology, which is a silicone-based foam dressing in this case, as seen here. And you can see how lifting up the dressing with purple really doesn't disrupt the skin and the epithelium at all, whereas more adhesive type dressings are pulling up the epithelium and thereby causing some pain, but also delaying the healing. But for us, really the, the, the most ideal dressing maintains a moist environment. We talked about non-adherent and easy application and removal, and really that painless application and removal, so critical. Um, clearly cost comes into play in any sort of management of any patient, but we'd like something cost-effective. We'd like something that at least, uh, you know, protects us or minimizes the risk of infection and, and clearly something that can stay on for several days up to a week means the patient doesn't always have to stay in the hospital. And that's a huge bonus. And that leads to less dressing changes. Um, so here's some wounds. And we're talking uh, again about a silver impregnated foam dressing as our main go-to for this type of wound. Unless anatomically like the face, you can't really use this type of dressing. We can talk about that. But here's some examples of debriding the wound, applying our silver impregnated foam. Uh, it can be really applied almost anywhere. Um, I don't have a follow-up there, but you can see how easy the application is. And you can expect uh, you know, this to also be easy to remove. Here's a child, but again, this can certainly extrapolate to a patient of any size, but here's a skull burn to the chest. And after a couple of days of enzymatic debridement, this was moist and pink, and we decided to use silver impregnated foam. And you can see it can be cut to size and cut to fit various different anatomies. And you know, the patient went home and a week later in the clinic, it was removed. And here he is two weeks later, there was no pain, no stress patients not moving, crying, screaming, so not traumatized. And a, here's a four-week and a six-month you know, post-op visit. So still some pigmentary issues, but no scarring and no issues with pain management and or traumatic issues for the patient. Here's another patient, you know, and you can see here, it's another child, but see how the, the dressing can be easily lifted up and you can look at that wound bed and what's interesting is you can see how the exudate perfectly matches the shape of that wound. So it's not spreading out to the side, causing maceration and other complications for the intact skin. And this dressing could potentially be laid back down and, and left in place longer. But in this case, it was changed. But here again, a happy, not crying child who wasn't traumatized by this dressing removal. And here he is at four weeks and two months. So see the area on the shoulder, um, took a little longer to heal. We have a little bit of scarring, which was dealt with, with with scar management, but no need for surgery, skin grafting, creating donor sites and other complications. And again, at four months, quite happy in six months. Um, you know, this really went very much in line with this findings of a study that I was one of the participants in. And you can see the authors lifted, listed here. This was a uh, a study that compared uh, the silver foam dressing with silver sulfadiazine cream. It was done about 12 years ago and was published in the burn journal. 
the JCBR. And you can see the title there, but the design methodology was a randomized controlled trial. Uh, we looked at partial thickness injuries that were less than 36 hours in, in time duration with a small to medium TBSA, 100 patients, randomized to either Mepilex AG or the silver foam or the silver sulfadiazine. And the tr treatment duration lasted up to 21 days. And what we looked like at was hospital length of stay, how long to heal, the pain scores, in-use characteristics. So was it easy to put on, easy to take off, et cetera? The total cost and the results are really shown here. So what you see here is the main results showed uh, a 5.6 versus an 8.3 day compared to control with the Mepilex AG as far as the length of stay. And you see that indicated there with a, a, a significant p-value. There was no real significance in healing times as far as statistically, but you can see there was about a four-day difference um, in that. And that 35% of the Mepilex patients were healed after one week, which was great. So they only had to really have one dressing change compared to only 20% of the Silvadine group. Again, when we looked at pain, I think that's really where the, the take-home message is here, is that we had significantly better pain management with the Mepilex AG in all different type time frames within the study. So during application, while being worn, and while being removed. Um, on removal, again, you, it's not statistically significant, but it's trending in that direction. Um, as far as the ease of use and flexibility, you see dramatic differences and the number of changes of dressing averaged only two per Mepilex patient, whereas 12 for the control group. Um, when we look at cost of care, that was really another uh, important factor. It was a savings of uh, you know over $200 per patient um, in these healthcare costs in the study, very significant. And really what we looked at was less analgesics, um, and the cost of the dressing was really the bigger cost compared to the labor intensive nature of having a daily dressing change. And again, you can see that here on this slide as well. So our conclusions were, this was cost effective compared to what the standard was. It helped with healing, it was safe, um, had minimal, minimal pain cost and ease of application. Um, another study here, control, uh, you know, that Dr. Kimball and others were the authors on, which uh, talked about three different burn dressings for partial thickness injuries in children in a head-to-head -head comparison published in 2015. And this was a, another fascinating study which talked about uh, in a randomized control fashion, looking at less than 72 hour old burns under 10% and randomized to receive either Acticote, which it is a silver um, nanocrystalline type of dressing, but it's not a foam and it doesn't have the silicone technology. And then we looked at a Mepitel combined with the Acticote. So the Mepitel has the safe tack, but it doesn't have the silver. So that was combined with the Acticote. And then we looked at the Mepil XAG silver foam dressing, which we looked at in the previous study alone. And the treatment duration here was up to 14 days. And what we looked at was, uh, what they looked at, I should say, is time to healing, different pain uh, analysis, um, in-use characteristics. Um, so what we look at as far as results are here listed in this chart. And you can see the sort of median uh, days to re-epithelialization 
approached about 10 in the Acticote or the Acticote Mepitel group, whereas the Mepilex patients healed about three days faster. Um, and that had significant p-values, even when we're comparing the Acticote to the Mepilex or the Acticote with Mepitel with the Mepilex. Both of those head-to-head -head comparisons were statistically better on the Mepilex AG side. When we look at dressing removal and dressing application, um, at this time of the first dressing, we again found that the Mepilex AG was faster. It had less uh, you know, difficulty and pain associated with it. Um, and there was more difficulty in the patients that um, didn't have the safe tech technology. So the conclusions were that it showed advantages when using a silicone interface, Dressings that adhere to the burn wound, as we showed in an earlier picture where the cells were being pulled off more traumatically in other types of dressings, that pain and that stripping of the cells is eliminated with the SafeTac silicone technology, and that sort of minimizes the delays in, in wound healing. And the differences in epithelialization between Mepilex AG and the Acticote plus Mepitel, so those are both, you know, silicone products, so you the you know, sort of the stripping doesn't explain it. And what we might be looking at here is this nanocrystalline silver product has a significantly higher amount of silver delivered to the wound. And perhaps there might be some cytotoxicity or excess release of silver from the dressings into the wound. So that remains to be delineated, but that's the hypothesis. So again, conclusions, Mepilex AG is an effective silver containing dressing regarding healing times, pain, ease of use in children and also in adults. Um, and using something with a silicone interface really can minimize that pain and that trauma, both physically and mentally to the patient. So here now we have our deep partial thickness and our full thickness algorithm. Um, and really we break that down at whether or not there's dermis left behind, or if there is not enough dermis left behind to you know, give you proper, you know, quality tissue delivered in a simple skin graft. So if there is sufficient dermis, uh, then we may do an autograft. In some cases, we may do a biologically active skin substitute, which may stimulate re-epithelialization if there is that potential. But if there really just isn't any viable dermis at all left, then we're looking at providing dermis to that wound so that we can get, um, you know, better quality skin, more supple, you know, the dermis really provides that quality of life to the patient. And so that's our really our two-pronged approach. Um, when we look at split thickness skin grafting for deeper burns, again, our, we focus on pain and we focus on donor site morbidity. Um, we have multiple options um, in our pediatric patients. In adults, you know, we don't think about the scalp as often, but the scalp is a wonderful donor site in, in any age group once the hair grows back and it always grows back without really any issues of, of hair loss, um, then we have a hidden donor site. So that's really nice for the patients. Um, in the, the thigh is the most common area, but a lot of times, especially in a young child, that's kind of the diaper area and we can have morbidity from, you know, sort of cleanliness in that area. Um, and then it's easier to manage pain in, a, in the scalp where it's not moving but we have different options for management of pain. Um, but we certainly can have morbidity and prolongation of hospitalization from a donor site. 
So, you know, pain, pain management type dressings make a big difference. Here's some examples of a thigh donor site. And in this case, uh, this was part of a study we were also involved in really evaluating something called Mepilex Transfer AG. It's another Mepilex foam uh, silicone based dressing. And you can see here, um, here's a skin graft that has been applied. So first we have what's called Mepitel AG, which is again, a, a safe tech technology, um, but a silver impregnated version of Mepitel. So we provide not only the antimicrobial, but we provide silver in, in reasonable doses. So this may be the solution to that 2015 arm of the study that had to add the Acticote to the Mepitel. Now we have a Mepitel with silver in it. Here's the Mepilex transfer AG on the donor area. And you can see a standard dressing. Here we are about a week out. Um, and you can see how nicely and clean and dry these grafts are and how well taken they are later on in the, in the care of the patient. Nice healing there. Here's the donor area. And you can see at a week was really almost completely healed with some small areas that are still open and the dressing can be reapplied. Again, for our scalp donor versus the thigh, again, similar dressing management, again, part of that study. Here we are, we shaved the head and we were able to harvest quite a bit of skin from the scalp. And for those of you who don't remember, the scalp is disproportionately large in a small child than compared to an adult. So you can get quite a large surface area from the scalp. Here's the Mepilex transfer AG that's been nicely conformed using staples and some, you know, cutting and a little bit of, you know, tailoring done here. Um, and here's the skin graft applied to that donor, that foot. And here's the silver Mepitel dressing. And again, just a week later, these things are looking really great. And you can see again, three months later, how the hair grows back beautifully. Uh, so again, to re-emphasize re the, the scalp donor site benefits is listed here. It grows, the hair grows back. It really does have decreased pain because there's not a lot of movement and, and uh, irritation from the diaper. Uh, easy wound management and less visible scar. So to conclude really uh, for our part here is that the use of dressings with silicone interfaces really should strongly be considered for use in, in any population, but especially children, mostly to reduce that need for painful dressing changes and the trauma associated with it. Um, being selective and careful with your donor sites Again, we always poo-poo the donor site, but it really can have some morbidity to it and may increase pain and length of stay. So our bottom line is we wanna treat the underlying cause, treat the pain, provide good undisturbed wound healing. And when we need to um, think outside the box to help control those pain issues, because pain can be so uh, devastating to the patient in many ways. Thank you. Uh, we'll come to our global audience. If there are any questions, please use the interactive chat and uh, we'll be able to ask our experts anything that you uh, would like answered. Um, Dr. Glatt, can I come to you for your for your thoughts uh, in terms of algorithms? I mean, I think that's such a, uh, a wonderful way of standardizing the care for whole, the whole member of the multidisciplinary burns team. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Uh, thank you, Dr. Kimball, for um, that wonderful presentation. Absolutely. I learned a lot and I am also a, a pediatric burn specialist myself. I don't do many adults either. 
So we felt that um, algorithms were very useful. We don't quite have the, the system that they might have in, in Queensland because we have patients come from, from different states with different socioeconomic, which everybody has. But for example, for us to get a patient in negative pressure, which we I've always thought was a wonderful idea within four hours or even 24 hours is virtually impossible for, for us in our system. It's a shame, but I've always read the papers on that topic and thought, well, we need to get it done quickly and then it would work. And we just were never able to, to get to that point. But uh, maybe we should revisit that and perseverance certainly would be like the way to go there. Um, the grafting rates, I'm a firm believer in, you know, aggressive first aid, soap and water, cooling, um, the same, neg uh, even enzymatic debridement maybe helps with some of the deeper partial thickness burns as an early intervention. But uh, I think what you're doing is great. Uh, I'm a, Also, we do a lot of distraction and uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress, you know, we're looking at, you know, painful dressing changes versus sedated dressing changes. And again, we're very aggressive at taking not, we don't have the same access to theater as they do in Dr. Kimball's unit, but we do sedated dressing changes in our unit within the first 12 to 24 hours, basically under anesthesia, but not in the operating room. Uh, but again, limiting that stress and hopefully getting those patients mentally to help give them the best effort at re-epithelializing without um, deepening or without surgery. What in the history should our um, global viewers be kind of cognizant of in terms of assessing that, doing that initial assessment of of a wound uh, that's, you know, burns injury? You refer to the SafeTac technology and, you know, from your personal experience over the last two decades, how have you found that sort of, you, you remember obviously the earlier dressings that we used to yeah. use burns and how adherent they were despite obviously best efforts for it to be a painless dressing but how yes. would you feel about how do you feel that that's changed in terms of just through dressings that you would have used maybe um, a couple of decades ago uh, to what you're using yeah I mean it's really night and day I mean it's eliminated our need for changing dressings on a daily basis in a, a large percentage of our patients and um Really, the Mepilex AG was the first in its class to come out, and it it's really still our go-to dressing. We, it's it's been such a mainstay, especially in the pediatric burns. As far as we can put it on, they don't have to ever touch it. They come in a week later. Usually, it's healed. If not, we reapply it. And this is not what we were. You know, we used to have children screaming and kicking and crying in the in the burn unit in the burn in the burn uh, clinic for dress dressing changes that, you know, now we don't have to do that anymore. And so it's really made such a difference. It was sad times in those days because it was, uh, yeah, it was traumatic because every time they attended the clinic, it was associated with, this is a painful thing that's going to happen. And now you see yeah. methadone just comes right off. There's no flinching mm -hmm. um, or any, you know, anything like that. So um, thank you very much for your insight. And we've got some interactive patient cases to discuss. Of course, we're, you know, the first thing we need to understand is the mechanism of injury and the size of the burn injury. You know, it, we also have a high proportion of scald injuries over full thickness type of injuries. And so when we hear about flame injuries, we might think deeper burn. When we hear about scald, 
we're more prone to think that we can get this to heal non-surgically um, with with some of the you know some of the things that we just discussed. Um, the TBSA, as in Dr. Kimball's algorithm, dictates which direction we may go, whether the patient can go home in that first day with a 3% or smaller burn, for example, with a silver foam dressing, or if they need to be present in the in the unit with negative pressure or with, you know, we still do daily dressing changes on some patients. So whether they need to stay in the hospital and then, uh, you know, whether it's on the face or the hands where scarring is so critical versus another part of the body, not that we discount scarring on the, the back or somewhere, but these other areas are so much more critical that we may do different interventions in those areas. Thank you very much. And uh, Prof Kimball, can I come to you uh, just to get clarification for our global audience in terms of obviously the location and size of the burn? Uh, what's your sort of tried and tested method for assessing that TBSA, so the total body surface area of the burn? Uh, yes, uh, very, very important. Um, we, uh, for, for, for kids, most of the burns we're seeing are small to medium size, so they're they're not difficult to to measure. The mistake that a lot of people make is that they kind of erythema within the total body surface area, which you should not do. Um, which makes it slightly difficult because if you take a picture of a burn, we we do a lot of photographs, so all the referring centers send us pictures, so we know exactly what they're talking about. But if you take a picture very early, especially with scald injuries you may have may see erythema, which then will blister and um, you know, become much more apparent the, the real thickness of that burn after a few hours. So you got to, the time that that picture has been taken is very, very important. Um, but uh, we, we generally speaking, talking about the, the hand size of a child. So not your own hand, the child's hand including fingers, is about 1% of body surface area. So that's a, that's a rough guide. Uh, of course, you can't use the rule of nines for kids because their heads are bigger, their lower limbs are relatively smaller. We actually use a, bit, a nice app, and there's lots of apps in the world where you electronically shade in a, a, a picture of a, ch a child and not spit out the body surface area. We use actually the New South Wales Institute of Trauma app which uh, I think most Australians will use. And that's a very, very quick way of uh, determining body surface area for, for the bigger burns. The smaller ones, the child hand is, is absolutely fine. But I emphasize this importance of burns deepening over the first three days. And so we tend not to talk about all the intricate different depths, you know, whether it be superficial partial thickness, mid-dermal, deep-dermal partial thickness, because that will all change. And so you cannot be certain about a, the thickness of a burn wound just by looking at it in that first day. Um, so what we talk about is partial thickness burns and full thickness burns. And like I said in my presentation, full thickness burns are actually quite rare in our, um, in our finding. That a lot of burns which used to be thought were full thickness are actually deep dermal. There's dermis to preserve there even with the big burns which we see. So that, that, that that's very important. Um, and of course, we now know which kids have that escalated pain pathway, and we, we, we talked about that within the thing. So, you know, there's 
we know exactly what to do with most of our burns patients. Thank you very much. And can I ask uh, both of you gentlemen about uh, obviously the fluid resuscitation? I think obviously in your algorithm, um, perhaps you'd be kind enough to share it again with us. Um, talk a little bit about sort of fluid resuscitation types of uh, protocols that uh, you both obviously advocate in, in your clinical practice. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just start. Yeah, we, you know, again, we have to resuscitate the minority of our patients. So we um, tend to go along with the ANSBA guidelines. That's just really New Zealand Burn Association guidelines. And guidelines change a little bit depending on what part of the world. So we fluid resuscitate um, kids with, if they're under 18 months, with anything greater than 10% body surface area burns. For the older than 18 months, it was up to 15%. And um, we use the Parkland formula um, for the usual uh, partial thickness burns. We use a multiplier of two within the Parkland formula. Um, and we're resuscitating ideally with a substance like Hartman's solution. Um, and in kids, we tend to give maintenance fluids on top of the Parkland formula. But of course, these formulas are only a guide that all patients receiving fluid resuscitation will have a urinary catheter. And so we really go on urine output because I think, you know, over-resuscitation of kids with larger burns is a big problem. And I think over-resuscitation is actually worse than under-resuscitation. Um, we have not had a child in renal failure in the last couple of decades within our unit. And that's, of course, the danger of under-resuscitation. Um, so I'd much, I'd much rather keeping the kids in the drier side rather than soaking them. Because if you actually operate on kids that have been over-resuscitated, there's this huge layer of jelly just underneath the skin where all yeah. the vessels are stretched. And I think that really deepens the burn. So you can't just write a formula up and go to bed. You've actually got to monitor that urine output um, every hour and adjust um, accordingly. For the, the larger burns, so we're talking about burns greater than sort of 20, 25%. We are actually using a lot of albumin. So in the first six hours, we don't use albumin um, because it just leaks out the tissues and causes more problems. But after the first six hours, we're actually using albumin um, and Hartman's it's 50-50 for the resuscitation. And uh, if they're still requiring fluid resuscitation after that first 24 hours, which in our unit is actually quite rare, we're using 100% albumin at that 4%. And thank you very much, Prof. And what about you, Dr. Glatt? What's your experience in your unit? What What's your preference? It's honestly very similar. Um, again, most of our patients are under 10% body surface area, so they tend not to get um, aggressive resuscitation or even catheters. But once we get into that 10, 15% range, we also use the Parkland formula. The only thing, you know, if there's a, a question of inhalation injury, you tend to need a little more fluid. So that's one thing, but definitely monitoring urine output is the key. And then uh, we usually use ringers, but we may add dextrose in the smaller children um, in our maintenance, just so that because of their liver 
supplies and labor stores are are depleted very rapidly. Um, but otherwise, very similar. I agree that zone of stasis, if you kind of fill it with, you know, interstitial fluid from re over resuscitation, you're just dooming that tissue to, to convert to full thickness. So we tend to be a little um, under resuscitating as well. Thanks, Dr. Glatt. Uh, Prof. Kimball, would you be kind enough to share that algorithm, the one that came before your um, split thickness skin grafting um, slide? Because I'd, I'd really like to get your thoughts as well, Dr. Glatt, about that to see how how you manage in terms of trying to optimize that, that burns wound in the long term. Uh, obviously, to try and get minimal, minimal scarring uh, whereby possible. Um, So you wanted the uh, the first 24 hours algorithm? Uh, I think it's the one that came before the split thickness skin grafting slide. Um, it was near That's the first 24 hours algorithm. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'm not hearing. Thank you. I thought that was a really, really useful algorithm. I think our audience will really find that one helpful. And for the audience, we'll we'll include some of the the algorithms and all the information that we've discussed, and we'll discuss in the sixty minutes in our virtual booth, which will be under the handout section. So you'll see that on the right, uh, there on your screens. And as usual, any questions, please type that in the chat, and uh, we'll ask our experts their opinions. Uh, on any so that's the that's the first twenty four hours algorithm. So this is the first 24 hours algorithm, which um, really looks at um, the size of the burn, where it is, um, whether or not it's a, a clean burn. Um, yes. And, you know, we, as I say, this works very well for us, but we've had to fight to get this algorithm working because, um, you know, Prior to introducing this, it was it was difficult to get these kids into theater. We had to actually really put evidence behind it and publish this uh, before um, we got people convinced. Now, now it's no problems. It's just routine practice that we're taking. Yeah. Um, you know, at least one or two kids every single day with new burns to theater for that initial debridement. Mm -hmm. And all that research that um, you know we've discussed has culminated in such a nice, concise algorithm there. I mean, let's talk through sort of major burns, the little steps that you have there. So you've said there at the top, you debride thoroughly as as we've discussed with QV, um, and then you do the wash uh, chlorhexidine rinse, and then you opt for Mepitel and the Actacoat dressing on there. And then- um, Well, it, it really depends, you know, that we, in our randomized control trial, just looking at burn wounds and the dressings, we actually showed that Miplex AG was a superior dressing to Acticote and Mepitel. Um, it, the reasons for that is probably because it contains less silver and so it's less cytotoxic. It's, it, they both have got the same SafeTac technology at that skin interface so that when you remove the dressing, you don't remove new skin cells. Yeah. Um, the only problem is that Miplex AG can go under negative pressure wound therapy. And so, and also, you know, the other factor is that Miplex AG, although it's a superb dressing in Queensland, you've got to change it twice a week because it, it the wounds tend to get a bit dry. And so they get very, very itchy if it's left any on any more than three or four days. And so 
we we vary the dressings accordingly to that. But because we're using um, a lot of negative pressure wound therapy, we're using a lot of acticotin mipitel. Um, that um, you know, with with major burns, we're using a lot of dermal templates now. Um, we've got um, BTM, which we were we've been using for several years now because it it started off in Australia. It's an Adelaide invention. So we use a lot of BTM as a dermal template, uh, especially on our, our deep and uh, large burns. Um, and we're actually using dermal templates on the deep dermal partial thickness burns because we'll actually take on that. It's a substance which seems to be very resistant to infection. It will tolerate um, colonization very, very well. So... Um, things have changed you know, quite a bit over the years um, with these new substances coming in. But um, you know, the, the, the basics are all there. Proper analgesia, um, getting that burn wound scrubbed down as fast as possible, getting that optimum dressing on. And really, realistically, if you get things right in that 24 hours, everything else just follows. And as, a, as I say, more than 95% of our burns do not walk away with a scar. That's really right. astounding, yes. And and Dr. Glatt, how about yourselves when you're managing patients at this kind of, with this algorithm, obviously I know that you're not using this exact same algorithm, but would you say in terms of dressing? No, very similar, you know, I, I think our, the goal is to debride off the full thickness or, or dead tissue as quickly as possible to minimize inflammatory response and to minimize um, infection risks. We also use a lot of safe tech technology. We've actually sort of improvised and we've used the Mepilex AG as our, our negative pressure sponge. So that's something you might consider. It kind of gives you both advantages. Um, we also use a lot of templates and skin substitutes. If they're deeper partial thickness, we may use something more biologically active maybe to stimulate that healing within 17 days without a graft. If they're full thickness, obviously, um, we've always used a lot of Integra, but we've recently adopted some of the Keresis products and the BTM, and uh, we're trying to see what the most optimal is. But again, replacing that dermis, again, futuristically minimizes contracture we think in growing children and that's the, the idea there that's fantastic actually in uh, in a month's time our next uh global innovation in wound care summit series is actually on skin substitutes and we have actually got um btm and the fish skin technology from keresis amongst nice. other technologies and they're all going to be discussed with interactive patient uh, cases so we're really excited about that you'll have to invite us to that one yeah oh we will yeah for sure <laughs> Can I just finish by asking you gentlemen, in terms of the future of burns technology, in terms of the future of burns management, how do each of you envisage um, progress to be made in terms of essentially trying to get to minimizing scarring ultimately is, is there, I guess, as a clinician, yeah. that's our goal. Um, can I come to you first, Prof Kimball? Um, yeah, it's all, you know, this, it's a term we use now towards zero that really um, what we're staring down the barrel of is no patients requiring a skin graft and no patients ending up with a scar. That's the ultimate goal. Uh, we're 
getting very, very close to that. Um, inevitably, you're going to have some kids who have got large, deep burns. But instead of skin grafting them in the future, I'm sure we'll be um, getting dermal templates and seeding them with the patient's own cells. So in that initial scrub, you take a biopsy, you're, you're growing cells up, um, fibroblasts and keratinocytes, implanting them on a dermal template. Um, and then, you know, if you can speed that whole process up, you've actually got composite skin grafts to use on that patient within a couple of weeks. Um, and what you're going to be doing is temporizing that, uh, that burn until that time with give something like a, a dermal template and to pressure wing therapy. Um, so that's what I see in the future is zero grafts and this, you know, getting as close to zero with scarring as possible. Um, that, and, and the kids who do develop scars, I don't think we'll be reconstructing them in the future because our scar management techniques are so good with the use of silicons, um, microneedling, you know, all the different lasers we've got. So I think, you know, the, the outlook for, for burns, even major burns in kids is looking very, very rosy. That's such a, you know, such a really optimistic future. Yeah. And Dr. Glatt, how about yourself? What's, what's Again, your... Again, yeah, it's exciting times with the all of the new technologies that are being applied to to wounds and burns with with skin substitutes. I think ultimately, if we don't get a skin graft out of a box, you know, which I think is the, the other holy grail where you don't even have to harvest any of the patient's own cells, um, the resell technology has changed things quite a bit as far as minimizing donor sites and the, the scarring associated with that, another Australian invention. And then, um, yeah, definitely I've, I've thought about seeding my dermal templates with cells now already, and I, I haven't done it yet, but it's certainly something I would consider doing because people have done that with, with hair follicles and other ways of bringing cells into to grafts with some success. So I think whether it's a, a biopsy and done, you know, brought to the patient, you know, later on, or if it's a bedside idea with resell and other technologies merged together in a composite, I, I do agree with that. And certainly our scar, scar management techniques have improved as well. So I, I'm in full agreement. It's really incredible when you look back to 20 years ago with sort of Fiona Wood and kind of the research that was coming out of Australia and sort of cultured keratinocytes. And now we're actually essentially making that reality in the next couple of years where that's yeah. going to be part, of, part and parcel of every burns management potentially that would have previously required weeks and months of ongoing uh, treatments. So um, thanks again uh, for joining us for this uh, episode of the Wound Care uh, Global Innovation and Wound Care Summit series. Um, it's been a real pleasure to spend the last 60 minutes with you both. And uh, really grateful uh, to you answering questions from the audience um, as well. And don't forget, this is available uh, on demand on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our website, as well as on the Molnica Hub. Uh, so uh, thanks again once and all, and uh, we'll hope to see you in the next event. Thank you, everyone. It's been great. Thank you.